You know I'm right. The podcast that uncovers the origin stories of some of the biggest names in sports, media, and entertainment. Nick Durst here along with Joe Calabrese. And Joe, we're excited for our guest today. We've had so many of his colleagues on with us, and now we finally get him to join us here today as well. Yes, absolutely. Uh, you may have noticed he's worked for uh, WFAN, CBS Sports Radio, ESPN New York, and he told you that he would come on the podcast once the New York Jets had a quarterback. So now that the New York Jets finally, after about 50 years, have a quarterback, uh, he's on with us. We're happy. We're having him on. Uh, welcome, Peter Schwartz. Peter, good morning. Welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you guys for having me. And certainly thank you for your for your patience uh, through this uh, offseason uh, you know, saga with the Jets. But uh, I'm glad we have a chance to to talk now after uh, everything has been wrapped up the dust has settled for now so we're all set here looking forward to this conversation so peter i much like you i have about five or six jobs very difficult to balance everything so curious what's your process like to manage your calendar and how do you keep your family in tra- on track when they, when they need you for something and you're like, oh, well, I'm going to be at this job and then oh, I got to have this job. So how do you balance everything with your hectic schedule? Well, five or six, uh, you know, I credit you for, for juggling that. I think I have a few more than five or six. <laughs> so, so sometimes I joke, I probably have as many as 72, but <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's challenging. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. I, you know, I, I joke with people, but it's actually not too far off the truth that literally every time I wake up in the morning, um, I check my calendar and make sure I know where I'm where I'm working that day. If I'm working from home, what am I doing? Am I writing a story? Do I have an update shift? Am I doing a play by play? Like I literally have to check, you know, every morning. Um, and you know, obviously schedules are made up in advance. So I hope it's best as I can always to not miss any of my kids' games or not miss any family functions. So it's like a jigsaw puzzle, but you know what? After the two years we all went through of not having anything to do and then ultimately not having much to do, um, you know, I welcome I welcome the opportunity to be busy and, and busy most days rather than not being busy at all. So when did you want to work in media? When did you make that determination? And you attended Buffalo State University. Uh, how was it like being up there? How cold were the winters? <laughs> <laughs> How did you keep yourself active on campus uh, in terms of what you did internships wise? Well, I, you know, it's, it's funny you asked that a lot of people ask me, like, when did you know you wanted to be a sportscaster when you wanted to be in sports? And you know, for me, it was, you know, a really young age. I, I, I knew pretty quickly I was not very good at playing sports. Um, I think my little league career speaks, speaks for that. Um I was not very athletically inclined, but I just always loved to watch sports. And I remember one night at home watching, I'm a diehard Yankees fan, but I remember watching a Mets game with my dad on television. And I remember turning to him and saying, this is what I would like to do one day. I'd like to talk on TV or talk on the radio like, you know, these people are doing right now. And, um, it really struck me too, like driving in the car and listening to games with him on the radio. And uh, my mother wasn't, although I love my mother very much and she's very supportive of everything I do. Um, it was, it was always my father and I who had, you know, conversations about this and going to games a lot together. So I, I knew when I was pretty young 
um, that I wanted to do this. And and going to Buffalo State was just a tremendous um, experience for me and a great opportunity. I, I I wanted to go away to college. I wanted to go to a city where I knew that they had sports, where I'd be able to see my favorite teams play periodically. Um, I wanted to go to a school that had a good broadcasting department. And Buffalo State, for me, you know, checked all those boxes. Um, uh, at first, they were dumb enough to accept me in. I wasn't the greatest student in the world, but I, I learned quickly, um, you know, um, what it meant to have a really good education. And they gave me a great education and the experience at the college radio station and being able to cover the local pro teams in town um, was was just tremendous for me as a, as a college student, giving me you know, my first taste of that, of that opportunity. And, um, I will always relish it. It's been way too long since I've been up there to visit. I'm hoping to get up there at some point this summer. It's been a long time since I've seen some friends from college, but, um, you know, I, I loved it up there. I, I, somebody mentioned before how cold was, and I think it was you, Joe, who asked me how cold it was up there. And people ask me that all the time. And yes, it was cold in Buffalo. Yes, it snowed in Buffalo. Yes, it was windy in Buffalo. But to be honest with you, I never found it to be much different than growing up on Long Island. Um, I mean, it's the Northeast. It's cold. It's the, the, only, the only time it really, to be honest with you, the only time it really affected me was when they had those lake effect snows because Buffalo is obviously right off of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario. And I remember one time, getting up at eight in the morning to go uh, to a class and the class was probably from my dorm to the building was probably about the length of a football field. And I remember walking out that morning and it really wasn't snowing that much. It's not like it was a blizzard, but it was blizzard like conditions because it was a, a, a very um, light snow, but with the wind whipping around, I literally couldn't see five feet in front of me. That was really the only time it really ever bothered me. But for the most part, living in Buffalo for four years was was absolutely awesome. And I'm really looking forward to getting back up there at some point. That's great. Uh, what was your first job out of college? My first job out of college was with uh, something that probably either of you don't know what it is. With is was something called sports phone. Um, I don't know. I don't know. Um, it, it, Call it's for been the, talked, the scores. Yeah, yeah. It was actually it was it, it came up on Twitter uh, last couple of days because the other day the Mets and the Reds game, uh, it's a Nationals. I think it was. I don't remember who the Mets were playing. I think it was Mets and Nationals. Howie Rose was talking about it because he actually worked for Sports Phone back in the day as well. A lot of local New York sportscasters back in the day, you know, when I was younger, you know, all got their start at Sports Phone. Basically, what it was was a number you called up. You called up this number, 976-1313. And just like you would hear a sports update on WFAN or on another sports radio station, you literally got a sports report on the telephone. And it was pre-recorded, you know, during the day when nothing was going on. It was like every half an hour you went into the studio and redid the update. Um, and then during games at night, if you worked the night shift, you you updated those scores every every ten minutes, um, and it was just it was wonderful experience. It was a great first job out of college. It, um, it gave me a chance to hone some some skills doing updates, and uh, we also had press credentials for all the teams in town. So I got to cover 
Yankee games and Met games and Islander games and Jets games, everything. It was, was just a great first job. I remember um, I was getting ready for a, uh, a sports talk show um, at my college radio station. I was about to go into the studio and I get a phone call at the radio station. They obviously didn't have a cell phone back then. I get a phone call from my mother. She had just read in Newsday, and she always looked in the, the want ads for me if she ever saw anything for jobs when I was home from college or whatever it might be a, a fit. And she saw this ad for sports phone was looking for, for new, new employees. And uh, I said, great, Mom, thanks. I'll call you back. When I get back to my dorm tonight, I'll get the info. I did the show, and I, I, I got the info from my mother. The next day, I, uh, I typed out everything, a cover letter, my resume, sent it off. I went on a job interview. They called me for a job interview when I was home for spring break. They said, when can you start? And I said, well, I still have to finish up college and graduate, so can you hold this job until like the end of May? And they said, absolutely. And I went back to school for the last, I don't know, month or so, knowing that I had at least a part-time job after I had graduated college. Very nice. That was, that was and, the and that did And that did eventually blossom into a full-time job with them. So it actually worked out great. Yeah. You can't answer much more than that before you graduate, knowing at least a little certainty what you're going to be doing because a lot of people that graduate and they have to wait six, seven, 12 months to get it, to get it some work. So that was great. How did you ultimately end up getting the job with ESPN radio in New York in 2001? So that's an interesting story also. So, you know, prior to working for them, I was doing some work at, uh, at WABC radio in New York. Um, I was actually at that time working part-time in radio and I was working full-time in another another line of work but still doing my sports radio and uh you know sports play-by-play stuff on the side while i was working full-time in another uh, in another industry and um so yeah there was an announcement that uh espn radio was going to start locally in new york and it was the same people who ran wabc radio um that they were going to run that that radio station and for wabc i did sports updates for them um i did some talk shows i did a football show for them i did some baseball shows for them and i actually was there was the radio play-by-play announcer for the new york new jersey hitmen of the first incarnation of the xfl in 2001 that was on wabc so when i found out that espn radio was going to start in new york obviously i contacted the powers of b and i was in the mix for a job and and that's how I wound up getting that job and you know having to tell my boss at the other job I was doing that I was that I was leaving which didn't make them happy because um I had to do it on very short notice because everything was coming together so quickly but uh that was the, some fond memories of that and actually the first it was this this brings me back to you know obviously it was uh, the you know 911 so ESPN Radio New York went on the air on September 4th uh, 2001 and the first event that I covered for them was the U.S. Open uh, the U.S. Open tennis tournament and you know the Yankees were heading or you know were heading down you know, a road towards uh, the playoffs as well and um, the first team that ESPN Radio New York 1050 signed on for a rights holder deal were the Islanders so here I am you know a great job 
great brand new full-time job. I'm a huge Islanders fan. We're going to have Islander games. I'm going to cover some Islander games. And they, they assigned me to cover the first few days of Islanders training camp in Lake Placid. So uh, the, the day of September, uh, September 10th, 2001, I had to go into the city to do my new orientation with the ABC people um, in Manhattan. So that was in the afternoon. Then at night, I went to go cover the Yankees game. I think they were supposed to play the Red Sox. Roger Clemens was pitching. And the game gets rained out. And the next morning, I know I'm driving up to, to Lake Placid, the morning of September 11th. And I get in my car early that morning. It was probably about 536 in the morning. And as, as dreary as the day before was, that morning, I remember driving up New York State Thruway towards Albany and then ultimately to Lake Placid how beautiful of a day it was. And everyone that has their memories of 9-11 remembers just how beautiful and clear and nice of a day that was. And I'm, I was on, I was on the, uh, the turnpike, the, the new, uh, the new New York state Thruway, and just before Albany. And I was listening to a local radio station up there, um, in the Albany area and heard the news of a plane hitting, uh, one of the towers and obviously at that time, nobody knew what was going on. It was, you know, it was an accident. Maybe, a, you know, the pilot, you know, got sick or had a medical issue. Nobody knew exactly what happened. But that's my memory of, of, of 9-11 was driving up to Islanders training camp in Albany. And I continue, you know, I, then the second plane hit. But I kept going because that at that moment, you, then you couldn't turn around and go back. You couldn't get back in to in, into downstate New York. So I continued on to Lake Placid, checked into my hotel and um, went to go watch the Islanders practice. And then this was, this is the ultimate irony of the whole day. Here I was sitting in the 1980 arena, which was the site of arguably one of the greatest moments in American history when the United States mm -hmm. hockey team upset the Soviet union on, it was arguably the worst day in American history the morning of 9-11 so um i was i was so excited to start that new job and a week later everything was on hold because our our world changed yeah that is a wild story peter to to hear that how did you or when did you end up eventually being able to, to come home oh i was only up there for two or three days as i recall at that point we were able to um we we're able to get back in the downstate i remember that that training camp was right after the Islanders had acquired Alexei Ashin from Ottawa, and um, a lot of buzz back then for that. Yeah, the team. the Ottawa media came to uh, came down from Canada to cover Islanders training camp, and that first morning after they arrived, their their producers, their bosses, because obviously the sports world was on hold. They were they were alerted, drive to New York and go cover what's going on in New York. And these people from Ottawa that were there to cover Alexei Ashen drove to New York, obviously couldn't get anywhere near where they needed to go and had to turn around and come back. And that really like, you know, when people were calling me from from ESPN radio, like, hey, uh, you know, because what wound up happening was WABC wound up simulcasting the news signal onto ESPN radio. So there was no ESPN radio for mm -hmm. you know the first you know few days of of, you know, the aftermath of 9-11. And they were calling me. And they were trying to get a hold of me. I remember, I didn't didn't have a cell phone yet. Um, 
And they're calling me trying to find out where I was because they wanted to use me as like a reporter on the streets of New York. And I'm like, I'm more, I'm in Lake Placid. Like this, I can't turn around and come back now. So yeah. I wound up being up there for three days. I didn't really get to do any work in terms of reporting from there because obviously the Islanders weren't anywhere near a priority as to what was going on in the world at that time. Um, but it was a couple of days later, I wound up going home and, um, you know, just, you know, it was, it was a week without sports. You remember the NFL canceled all the games that weekend. Baseball took a week off. And I was at, um, I was at Shea Stadium, the first major professional event in New York that mm. took place the night that Piazza hit the home run against the Braves. And I remember sitting in the press box and he comes up to the plate and I said to the person next to me, we could be about, we could be about to witness one of the great moments in New York sports history. And then Piazza hit the next pitch seemingly landed in another planet when he, when he hit that ball. Um, And uh, so I remember being at that, but obviously that was just, you know, a very, you know, a lot of spectrum of emotions starting that job at ESPN radio, because I was as excited as it was. It also came at a time that was very emotional for everybody. And it wound up, you know, having a chance to cover the Yankees run, you know, to the World Series that year, which was which was uh, very emotional as well. But I've been very fortunate uh, in all the years of, of doing this that I've had the chance to cover events like that. Yeah, iconic moment for sure. Piazza's home run. You have a great run there with ESPN as they're, you know, off the ground and running there and trying to make its mark in New York. Eventually, you end up with CBS Radio with WFAN in 2009. I feel like you've been on WFAN and CBS much longer than since 2009. <laughs> I don't know how it feels for you, but how did that process come about for you to, to join the company? You know, what's interesting about that. And this is why like, I always tell, you know, kids coming out of college and kids starting out in the business, like, you know, just you're going to, you're going to run into pitfalls and you're going to run into disappointments and, um, and I remember starting out after my last year of college, I probably sent out a million resumes, a million resumes, tapes, whatever. Um, and you get either no answer or you get like this real bland, sorry, we can't hire you. Yeah. Letter. And even when I got started at Sports Phone, um, FAN was on the air already. And listen, you always want to try and get to your goals and objectives in life. And at that point, if you were a kid from New York and you were working in broadcasting, I mean, you want to try to get to the pinnacle of your business. And to me, at that moment, how great would it be to work at WFAN? And I was working, for you know, lack of a better term, I was working in New York media, working at Sports Phone. I was doing some other things, too. And I kept sending tapes and resumes to FAN. I finally did get a response from them. It was from Mark Chernoff, who was the program director, a longtime program director mm-hmm. at WFAN. And he wrote me back the best. I wish I still saved this. I don't have it anymore. I, I would love, wish I had saved it. But he sent me back the best rejection letter that I've ever received from a job that I applied for. It was filled with constructive criticism. You sound great. Do this. Work on that. And, um, it really helped me. Like it really, I I feel like that letter was a turning point in my career, so to speak, because it, it wasn't just, sorry, um, we're not hiring you or, 
you know, these, the you know, typical, uh, you know, we've, we've decided to move in a different direction. No, this was a let you actually knew he was listening to the tape that I sent in, um, work on this, work on that, work on your inflection. And, um, so 2009, I get a, I get a phone call from Eric Spitz at WFAN. They were looking for a, a fill-in part-time update anchor. I was looking for work at the time. And um, obviously, there were a few years where I was ineligible to work at FAN because I was working at ESPN. But, you know, when that run came to an end, I was doing some other things. And FAN, out of the blue, one morning got a phone call from them. And the rest is the rest is history, and I'm glad to I'm glad to be there right now because it's been a lot of fun. For you, what is your least favorite shift to work? I interned there, so I got a sense of everything with how the update anchor shifts go. I mean, the, the morning seems fun, but getting up at two, three o'clock, I don't know if that's that's that fun if you're doing that too. Consistent. Yeah, um, I, I I'll be honest. This may not seem like a very popular take by a lot of people. Um, who don't like getting up in the morning and don't like working late hours, but I am a morning person, so I can get up very easily to go to the, those morning shifts when I fill in on Boomer and Geo, or if I'm filling in on CBS Sports Radio with DA, or if I've had those early morning 880 shifts. I also don't mind the night shifts. I worked full-time overnight for ESPN Radio for a few years, and I didn't mind that at all because it didn't really conflict with any family stuff. I would have still able to go to my my kids' games. I can go out to dinner with my family and just you know take a nap and then and then go to work. So it worked out. Get up with you know get home in the morning, help my wife get the kids off to school, and then go back to sleep. You know so that that worked out great. So I loved mornings. I I didn't mind the evenings, um, and I certainly didn't mind the overnights. The one shift that I absolutely despise is the daytime shift because it really and this seems crazy because like like why wouldn't you want to work like during normal business hours and the day shift is basically like from noon one o'clock until eight or nine o'clock at night and to me that's just like that kills your whole day yeah. because not only do you have to like because your shift start at one o'clock but you have to get there a couple hours early to start writing and preparing for your update shift and then you're working until 8 8 30 at night and now you got to get home to long island from Manhattan so it really like to, to me that's the worst shift that I, I always joke that's a single guy shift that's not a that's not a shift for someone like myself who's married with two kids family of four that you know we like you know you get home from school you get home from work and um you know go to the game go out to dinner go to the mall you know like 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 if you have that shift from from noon or one to, to eight or nine at night I mean, you you have to have like nothing else going on in your life to to have a shift like that, because <laughs> I I try, at, if at all possible, not to ever accept that because that 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 to me kills your whole day. Talk about the daytime shift at WFAN. Got to talk to you about a certain longtime uh, daytime WFAN uh, radio host. His name is Mike Francesa. What was it like having Francesa yell at you about the Jets? You know what's funny about that? Um, people to this day remind me about that, that they were listening that day or they were watching it on television. And I I I'm I'm laughing only because like so every time somebody asks me that question, I just think about all the funny things that happened that day. The messages I was getting from people, my wife 
working in her office, um, my, my wife's office had a, a cafeteria lunchroom type thing where like a lot of the, the salespeople and, you know, people who take their breaks, they would go in there and the TV would be on. And two of the sales guys in her, for her company um, were watching it and they went over to her desk and they said, Hey, Cheryl, uh, you might want to check in with your husband. He just got uh, the crap beaten out of him by Mike Francesa. And she called me. She's like, are, are you okay? I'm like, I'm fine. I'm fine. Everything was good. And, and just like that, everybody, everybody's opinion right off the bat was that Mike was angry at me. Uh, Mike was screaming at me. He was not screaming at me. Um, I came to confirm this, you know, after the fact, because I had a great relationship with Mike. Um, he was not angry at me. He was angry at the information that the Jets were giving me. So he was screaming at the Jets through me. And here's the, the interesting part of that story. So at that, at that moment, um, so this is uh, circa, you know, 2010, uh, 2010. Yeah. So it was a 2010. See, I just started covering the jets and my, my older son, uh, Bradley was just about four years old at that time. My younger son, Jared had just been born the June of that year, right before the season started. Um, so Jared was, you know, in his, uh, crib sleeping. Uh, at that point of the day, Bradley was in the den right where I'm sitting right now watching watching television. And so it was an off day for me. Like I wasn't I wasn't out in Florham Park that day. I was off that day and home taking care of Bradley and, and Jared. And I said uh, to Bradley, said, listen, WFAN wants me to go on and talk about the Jets. You want to watch daddy on, on television? I'll put it on for you. So I, I turned on. Yes. And he's sitting here in this in this room watching it and i remember it was a really nice day i went outside in front of the house and i made the phone call to call francesa outside and we went through this whole thing it was about braylon edwards and the drunk driving charge that he had and the jets had given out some some really really bad information the night before about everything and mike just lost it he lost it on the jet like this ridiculous because the jets the jets felt like they couldn't suspend him where they really they couldn't suspend them or they didn't have to play him so there's this whole semantics argument and mike and mike is telling me i'm like mike i i i understand i'm just telling you what you know the jets are saying so mike had this whole argument but he was yelling at the jets through me jets wound up calling me up because they heard this they backtracked on a couple of things and uh so I get off the phone with Francesa. I walk back in and for them remember Bradley is at the time. So this is, this is like Jan, this is September of 2010. So he's all of five years old at the time. Daddy, why was that man yelling at you? <laughs> like he wasn't yelling. It sounded like he was yelling at you. I'm like, he was not yelling at me. He was yelling at the jets. Um, and I remember like two weeks later, I think it was two weeks later, I was actually filling in for John Minko on a Sunday morning update shift. And I, so I was on with Mike on his morning, Sunday morning NFL show. And um, so that shift would start like six in the morning through all the other shows. And then Mike's show, I guess, was at nine o'clock that morning. And so it was about like 8.15 or so. I was getting ready for the 8.20 update. And... Uh, I see Mike standing in the corner of the newsroom, not far from where my cubicle was. And um, 
I'm like, all right, I have to go talk to him about this because I'll go do the update and um, he, uh, I have to talk to him. Now, one thing about Mike was sometimes people didn't care for him, but he was very, he always took care of his staff. He always took care of his people. And every Sunday morning, and I, I knew this was happening because people would tell me, don't bring breakfast in on Sunday morning because Mike brings in bagels from like a bagel place by his house on Long Island. I'm like, okay. So you, sure enough, this big giant bag of bagels he brought in that morning. So I went over like I was going to get a bagel for breakfast. And I said, Mike, I have to talk to you about what happened a couple of weeks ago. Sure. And, um, and I said, just want to make sure that, you know, you and I are, are okay. Uh, because, you know, people have been talking about how, like you were angry with me that day, and I, I didn't get the impression you were, no, 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 I wasn't angry at you. I was yelling at the Jets, and I called Mike Tannenbaum, and uh, you know, I said, you know, they did you bad by giving you that bad information, and uh, I don't know if I'm doing a really good impersonation of Mike, but this is the best I can do. On it's good. And, it's a, and I said, now you're in my inner circle here covering the Jets, and I have you on. People are going to connect the two of us now. So I just want to make sure you know that I had no problem with you. And Mike was very good to me or uh, the three years I covered the jets for FAN. And obviously with that came the, you know, the, the, uh, the fringe benefit of getting to go cover the Super Bowl for FAN every year too, and being on with Mike every day. Um, and even to this day, you know, I, I, I stay in touch with him every now and then I shoot him a text to say hello. And he was always very nice to me and very appreciative of my work, but no, in no way, shape, or form was Mike yelling at me that day. He was yelling at the Jets through me. Well, Mike wasn't the first person who's ever yelled at the Jets, and he won't be the last. Uh, <laughs> with the messenger, right? You're just doing your job. Well, I would always yell at the Jets when I was sitting in my season tickets in Section 339 at Giant Stadium, but no, not like he yelled at the Jets through me that day. So you mentioned at the top, work a lot of jobs. You said you 72 jobs. Uh, you've also worked play-by-play, -play, uh, and you're a public address announcer for the New York Cosmos and Long Island Ducks, some iconic uh, independent New York brands and teams, and very other sports. So how did you get those opportunities? Was it a matter of you reaching out to them, wanting the extra work uh, and the extra broadcast opportunities, or do people uh, who work over there who represent those teams reach out to you? Well, with the... Um... The Cosmos, and I missed that job. I was so excited when they came back in 2013, and um, I had a chance to work with them through their existence during their reboot. Um, and obviously, you know, it's disappointing that they had to stop playing again. But we don't know what's you know, there's pending lawsuits with that, so I don't have to get into that aspect of it. But knowing that they were coming back, um, I did reach out to them. I remember as a kid going to Cosmos games with my dad at Giant Stadium. Uh, and 70,000 people back in their, in their heyday with, you know, Canalia and Beckenbauer and uh, Pele and, um, and all those great players that they brought over. My dad and I would go, you know, it's funny. Sometimes, you know, Hey dad, you want to go to the Yankee game? You know, sometimes we'll say, yeah, sometimes he was too tired from working and everything like that. But every time it was like, Hey, you want to go to the Cosmos game? Like, Oh, it's like, he always wanted to go it was something about, you know, being at Giant Stadium with 70,000 people, it was just a unique event. And I loved going to Cosmos games, and it was great. And I always you know, will remember the championships that they won back in the day. So when I found out they were coming back. I'm like, boy, that would be great if I got to work for the team that, you know, I grew up, you know, loving to go to the games and rooting for them. And as it turns out, uh, somebody I knew uh, from another, you know, from other 
part of the sports world, wound up getting a job with the Cosmos. And um, I reached out to him and one thing led to another and uh, I got I got the job. Um, the funny part about that was because of the the people who owned the Cosmos, there was a, uh, a company policy that they had to have, you know, candidates for the job. And they were having an open practice one night in training camp. It was in training camp or it was an open tryout. I think it was an open practice. It was like a meet the team kind of thing. Um, and they had like a fan fest at Hofstra where they were playing their home games. And the guy said to me, he goes, look, you're going to have to uh, go through. I, you, you, you know, I, I think you know where this is going, but there's another candidate for the job. And uh, so you're going to split the announcements with him at the fan fest. And I said, okay. So do I have anything to worry about? And he goes, I, I, I can't, I can't comment. I, it's just, you have to show up and go through the, the rigmarole of the tryout. So I'm kind of like getting the gist of like, this is just like one of those things where like when a company posts a job, you know, they have to interview X number of people to, to get the job. So uh, I get to Hofstra stadium that night with my family that, my wife takes the kids on the field to go do the activities, and they already had the other guy there doing the uh, announcements that they had, you know, for before it started. So I get upstairs, and they say, "Okay, Peter, you're going to take over doing some of the announcements." So I go to sit down in the chair, and the other guy, who was a lot younger than me at the time, um, and he sits a couple of seats over to the left, and I read the first couple of announcements, and. He looks at me, he goes, well, I could tell you you've done this before. And I said, I said, yeah, I have a little bit of experience. He goes, well, what have you done? And I started to read off all the things that I've done, like working at ESPN, and I currently work at FAN. And then the guy sits there and goes, well, I can see where this is going. And he got up and walked out. Wow. <laughs> that was, and that was the end of that. And I wound up getting the job. But I kind of figured I had the job. I just had to go through the rigmarole of um, of of doing the, the announcements that night, but uh, I loved it. And you know, during my tenure with the Cosmos, they won, you know, three championships um, after their reboot. And I was the PA announcer for two of them because two of the three, they won at home. And uh, one of them was in front of over 10,000 people at Hofstra stadium, which was just absolutely phenomenal. And uh, two times during those seven years, six, seven years of doing the Cosmos games, I actually got to interview Pelé, uh, introduce Pelé, wow. who came to see some of the some of the games, and that was pretty that was pretty remarkable. Was you know, getting to introduce arguably the greatest you know athlete of all time. I mean that may be debatable to some people, but you know, to get a chance to introduce Pelé to ten thousand people was 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 pretty cool. And I missed that. That's one of the jobs I've had that I really I really miss. I wish they were still around. Well, Peter, I definitely miss. One of your other famous jobs, the New York Dragons, oh. you have to come back and reboot because that was electric stuff. Garcia, tremendous legend in the Arena Football League. We'll see if that, if, if anything happens there. You did a great article on that last year, I remember. And well, let me, let me just let me just stop you for one second. I'm going to move the camera over this way, and if you can see in that case right there is yeah. a uh, New York Dragons helmet. Wow. There's some other Dragons artifacts in that in that helmet. That helmet was uh when my wife and i got married that was a wedding gift from the from the nice. dragons signed by the whole team uh you know that year and um uh i will say this about the dragons 
um, and I, I, I'll say this to anybody who would listen to me. In fact, the new, you know, people are that are bringing back the Arena Football League next year, and I've had conversations with them already about um, you know, possibly having a role, whether there's a team in New York or not. But the, my eight years in the Arena Football League, um, not and not just the eight years of doing the play-by-play for the Dragons, but I also did work for the league. I did a radio show for the league on Sirius. I wrote for the league's website uh, when there were arena bowls, neutral site arena bowls for four years. I did the uh, the net, the radio national radio broadcast of the arena bowl and did shows from Radio Row at the arena bowl. Those eight years in the arena football league, hands down, the 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 best job I've ever had in sports, the most enjoyment I've ever had in sports. And to this day, and the, the Dragons stopped and the league stopped after the 2008 season, it came back, but it came back, but without the Dragons. Yeah. But those eight years were so great to me in my career, so much fun, met so many great people. And like to this day, like I, I get emotional thinking about it only because I, I, I miss it so much. It was the best job I've ever had. And I'm really, really hoping that next year, when the AFL does come back with the new ownership and the new management that they figure out a way to get a team. Um, if not at the Coliseum somewhere in the New York metropolitan area, because um, <laughs> that would really be uh, a cool thing is to get back involved with that. Yeah. The barn was really rocking in the, in the 2000s. So hopefully there's a team in the New York area, reboot it. And I think Joe and I agree. You'd be great for play by play. Put me on the sideline. <laughs> so for you peter though i, got, I, you, I was able to get a little as big as it I was. was able to get a little taste of of indoor football again a few years ago because there's this other league called the uh the national arena league and they had a team in new york um a few years ago called the new york streets and they played in the westchester county center um and while it was wonderful to be involved with the sport again and my color commentator was Will Holder, who played for the Dragons back in the day. Um, it was not the same. It was not the same atmosphere. It was great to be involved in the sport, and I met some some really you know great people that year with them. But it was not the same. And I just uh, I pray hope that the Dragons can come back. Tell us about you your. Go ahead, Joe. Do you ever think it's going to grow to the popularity that it did before? Because at one point. You had John Bon Jovi and all these people owning the Philadelphia Soul. It was a national brand, a really distinct national brand. And I think a lot of people have always wanted a uh, a filler spot for the, the seasons and the months that the, the NFL is not playing. And I think the Arena Football League actually accomplished that for a brief period of time. Uh, do you think that in a reboot, it could ever get back to where it was? That's a great question, and I and I I don't know the answer to that question. I I could tell you that you know some of the some of the iconic franchises from the Arena Football League are still spread out around the country in some of the other indoor football leagues. So, um, I I think for the AFL to be successful, they probably have to try and figure out a way to get some of those teams back involved with them, whether it's the Arizona Rattlers or um the Orlando Predators down in Florida. I mean, there's I, I don't know how you can bring the AFL back without having those iconic franchises that were so the Iowa Barnstormers who became the New York Dragons, they're in the IFL and the other in the other um, uh, indoor football league. So I would hope that they're able to bring back some of the iconic franchises. As far as the popularity goes, you know, they, 
there were different eras of the AFL. You know, you had that first era where, you know, the teams were basically in smaller markets like Iowa, um, uh, you know, Orlando, you know, places like that where they didn't have a lot of professional sports teams and they were able to really, um, you know, do very, very well in terms of attendance and popularity. And then the league started to grow and players' salaries started to go up. And then you had the, you know, the time where, you know, the, uh, the game was getting so big that some of the smaller markets couldn't catch up. And that's why Iowa wound up moving to Long Island to become the Dragons. And it was right after that, you know, 2001, 2002, they were still, the league was still on that, you know, cable deal with, you know, TN, with the Nashville network. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, NBC gets involved because you started to have the NFL owners started to get involved with the sport thinking at some point down the road it could be like an official minor league. And I think there was some good and bad to that. I think the good was that they had an infusion of money and rich owners that um, that were buying into the sport. I think also the bad part of that was that you had people that tried to change the sport a little bit too. You know, John Elway didn't like the concept of, of Ironman football. And the, there was a point where the AFL changed, you know, they went from Ironman to now playing, you know, eight on eight, you had eight offensive players and eight defensive players. And I thought the beauty of the sport was that you had guys who played both ways. So, um, and it reached, it reached a peak of um, acceptance by people all over the country. And then it just, you know, it, it dipped down near the end. It was still on uh, ESPN and, th- and, you know, and big outlets like that. Um, but I would hope that the most important thing that the new people do that run it is get that network exposure, get on a legitimate, you know, cable outreach. Even if it's their streaming involved in it too, they've got to get the exposure of the sport. And the biggest thing they have to do, and this is one thing that I didn't, I was always pushing for when I worked for the Dragons. I think they'll have to do a better job this time around of educating fans who are new to the sport on the rules. We did something with the Dragons. They had me voice over it at the games was teaching fans the rules. It was like AFL 101. So I'm hoping that when they when they come back, they teach people about the history of the game, the rules of the game. And listen, I, I always got tickets for friends and family who always wanted to go see a game. And they would ask me once for free tickets, and they would get them. And then they would go back over and over again. Because once you got a taste of it and you saw it in person, your TV was great, but once you saw it in the building, uh, there was no turning back. You were basically hooked on it. It was a great sport, and, and I and I think you know I think it will do well if it if it, if you have the right people backing it and you market it to the right people. I certainly think it can be uh, a success. You know, in in certain markets, and then we'll see. They they say they're going to have sixteen teams next year, so it'll be interesting to see which sixteen they wind up going to. Hopefully, one of them uh, has a five one six area code attached to it. We'll say like, the problem with the XFL reboot this time and the USFL is there's no New York team or the USFL, there's a New York team that don't play in New York. So that's a, that's a conversation for another day. But Peter, for you, how does your prep work change between knowing you're going to be doing play-by-play for an event versus public address? Well, public address um, is, it, it's different than play-by-play because obviously you don't necessarily have to have all the background you know, information on all the players. You get to the game an hour and a half before you're given a script. Um, and remember, mo- most of the time, 
doing public address. I mean, you're you're announcing just a player's name, number, and position. You're reading a spot for Joe's Hardware or you know Mary's Kitchen or you know whatever it might be at a, a minor league baseball game. But when you're doing play by play, I mean, it is a lot more uh, a lot more background work, a lot of homework that goes goes into preparing for a broadcast. And if you're doing, you know, I, even now, like if I'm doing a you know, a riptide lacrosse game on the radio that's on a Saturday night, I'm basically spending, you know, all week, um, you know, looking at the roster, putting my, you know, my spot charts together, uh, you know, watching the team that the riptide are about to play, watching the, watching their game from the week before to get to know their players a little bit more. So play by play is a lot, there's a lot more background and, and homework that you have to do. You know, PA is almost, um, it's it's almost a breeze. I'm not going to say it's a complete breeze because there's still challenges that come with it. But as far as like knowing the players, they like really just have to pronounce the players' names correctly. I mean, that's you know that's that's the simple part of it. And then you know that's it makes that fun. You know, intru- to me the 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 rush you get from doing public address is hearing the fans' reaction to you announcing. I, it was a little bit surreal for me a few weeks ago. I did my first Ducks game of the year. Daniel Murphy, the former Met, is playing for the Ducks, and I, I'm introducing him in the starting lineup. And you hear, like, I, I wait a second. You hear, like, what was the reaction to the fans yeah. the way you announced that? And I, I was, I would, I, I, I stopped for a second after I announced Daniel Murphy's name because I wanted to make sure that I heard a little bit of the the roar in the background because here it is. Here's a guy that was a great Met for a long time and. 2015 NLCS MVP and here I am introducing him you know at you know Fairfield Properties ballpark in the Atlantic League and I thought that was kind of cool but the um the play-by-play is a completely different animal I mean you have to assume people are listening you know they're trusting you to tell them exactly what's going on you and and if you know the game is a blowout you have to have something to talk about so you have to know something about all the players basically uh, you know, in during the course of a game, because you never know how the game is going to go. But to me, it's two completely different things to prepare for. So I have a little bit of uh, public address announcing experience myself. Uh, Nick, between the both of us, he's the one who does a lot of uh, collegiate broadcasting, independent broadcasting. Uh, but for the College of Staten Island here, uh, we've worked several dates together, uh, mostly soccer stuff, but you know, it's not so difficult, but sometimes you got to watch stumbling on over some names and stuff if you don't really know. And um, that's something that you really can't ultimately prepare for all the time. Uh, I guess it's a little bit easier for you, especially if you have familiarity with other players who play for those independent teams. Um, but we want to get to your other jobs here uh, before we start letting you go. Uh, started writing for Barrett Sports Media. And Nick and I are fortunate that our podcast here has been featured a couple of times uh, for BSN. Uh, most recently, I think we did an episode with Noe Eagle, uh, the son of the great Ian Eagle. Uh, he's working in California now. He's a good friend of Nick and I. So uh, BSN did it, a write-up there, and I forgot who did it, but it was really, really good, and it was surprising for Nick and I. Uh, we also wrote uh, for various press publications, Greater Long Island Media Group, uh, sports anchor, Fox News headlines, twenty four seven. So again, you you, ju- you juggle a lot of things over here. So primarily, what I want to ask you is, how did the Barrett Sports Media opportunity come about? Uh, did Jason approach you with that? 
and for these other jobs, again, who approach you to do them and how do you juggle them in your life? Well, it takes a lot of juggling. You know, sometimes, you know, people ask for your availability and uh, it's WFAN, you have to get your, your dates in that you're available for. And I always sometimes ask my boss, like, can I have an extra day or two? I'm just waiting to hear about what's going on because you have other places that are asking you, you know, when you could work. So sometimes it can be a little challenging that you don't want to make you you don't want to get yourself double booked on the same day for for two events and god knows that's happened to me where you've had to try to talk yourself out of a shift you know with a place you've already said you can work so that's 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 not good um but when you have you know several jobs and none of them are, are full-time you know that's that's a, a little bit of a challenge but you, you do the best you can and um and we, we make it work um, as far as the Barrett sports media job goes, I've been very lucky to work for them. I think it's coming up on a year now that I'm, that I'm working for them. I have to, I can't remember the exact date that I, um, that I started, but they, they did have an ad on social media. They were looking for writers and I reached out to Jason and, um, he was obviously, you know, aware of my career and my experience and he thought it would be a good fit. So I get to do a, an article a week for them. Uh, focusing on a you know media per, sports media personality and um, I I it's been enjoyable because while it's nice to write about people I know in the New York market, what's really been cool about that job has been you know connecting with sports media people around the country that I that I did not know before talking to them. So you know doing a story about um, you know a, a a personality in Cleveland or in Los Angeles or you know, in Chicago, you know, executives around the country. You know, that's the whole thing about this job is is networking and getting to know people because you never know, you know, someone you're talking to in Chicago, you know, next week they could be working in New York and you could be working with them. So it's been kind of cool to connect with people all over the country and um, and tell people stories. Uh, and that's been that's been the most enjoyable thing so far was, you know, to me is getting to meet different people and connect with them, not just on for the story, but then connecting on social media and, you know, staying in touch with them. So I really enjoyed that, that part of it. I, I don't, I don't think I'm doing it. I don't think I'm destined to be the next Bob Raceman or Andrew Marshand or anything like that, but I do like telling stories about, you know, people who work in our medium. How much of a thrill is it for you to be asked to throw out the first pitch for the Somerset Patriots? That came out of left field, no pun intended. That really did. Um, <laughs> it, you know, it's it's funny. You know, Boomer and Geo, you know, they they joked, and other people at FAN joked, like, did how did how did you how did that happen? Like, did you ask to do it? Like, you asked to throw out the first pitch. I mean, that's kind of pompous if somebody you know asks or demands to throw out the first pitch. What it what it happened was was the president of the Somerset Patriots had reached out to me the year before inviting us to come out my family and I to come out to a game and so that was the 2021 season when they came back after the pandemic and um the schedule just didn't allow for us to get out there you know we looked at dates and you know whether it was my work schedule my wife's work schedule the kids playing sports and stuff we just there, there wasn't a date available when the schedule came out last year I looked at it now I, I just give you a little background. My wife and my kids are Mets fans and I'm a Yankee fan. Um, so whenever we go to these minor league games, we try to make plans to go, whether it's the Cyclones in Brooklyn or whatever, 
you try to go when when both affiliates are, are playing. So a lot of times we go to Brooklyn and Brooklyn is is also is playing, you know, Hudson Valley is the Yankees affiliate. Uh, if we're going to see, you know, we were going to go see Somerset. I wanted to make sure we went when they were playing Binghamton right. so that everybody is happy. So there was a night, there was a night um, where it was a free night. My wife was on vacation. We didn't have anything going on that night. I'm like, oh, Somerset's playing Binghamton. Let's go to the game. So I reach out to the, hey, is is it okay to get tickets for this night? Uh, my kids were excited because they were giving out baseball cards that night. So it was just, it was a perfect night to go. It was Yankees. It was Mets. It was a good giveaway. It was, it's a nice ballpark in Somerset. And she says, sure, no problem. We're going to leave you four tickets. And then the next day, he sends me back another message saying, hey, how would you like to throw out one of the first pitches that night at the game? And I'm like, oh, how cool is that? I'm like, yeah, sure, no problem. And I start getting nervous. I go out before my glove, take the kids outside, and I'm loosening up. You know, I'm getting ready because I don't want – last thing I want to do is embarrass myself, you know, in front of 5,000 people. And I'm knowing, obviously, this is going to be a, a social media thing. And I'm warming up and everything. I won't get, you know, ready to go. It turns out they were – I was one of eight people who threw out the first pitch, but I was the last one. So I felt good that they saved me the last. And then they started teasing me on FAM when they found out about this. Like, are you going to throw it off the mound? And (laughs) I wanted to throw it off the mound. That was the intent to throw it off the mound. And then when I got to the ballpark, they said, you're going to throw it from just in front of the mound. And I'm like, you can't go on the mound. No, no, no. The groundskeeper won't let you go on the ground. And uh, we're on the mound. So I kind of got like ridiculed. Like, why didn't you throw it off the mound? I'm like, they wouldn't let me. Yeah. <laughs> so I threw it in front. Of, had I thrown it, would, it was a little high, my pitch. I'm sure you guys saw the video of it. It was a little high. And what bothered me about it was that if they let me throw it off the mound, it would have been a perfect strike because I would have been another two feet back. It would have dropped right Drop to the catch glove over the plate. So I'm hoping that Somerset invites us back again this summer. I'd like to have a another crack at it and throw a strike and I'll, you know, try to stretch out my arm a little bit more and, you know, get a little more velocity on it. I think you should have the, the Long Island Ducks should let you throw out the first pitch. You can introduce yourself, take the mic on the field <laughs> and you can make you some redemption. That'll work out. But yeah, that would, that would, that would, that would be interesting. The, the other cool thing about the Somerset was that, um, you know, I thought, you know, obviously when you get to ask to throw out the, throw out the first pitch, you get to keep the ball. So, you know, I'm a big memorabilia collector. My, you know, my kids are, are the same way now. So I figure, oh, I'll get, it'll be a New York, it'll be the double, whatever the double A um, league is. You know, it'll be like the official baseball yeah. of that league. And I'll be like, oh, that'd be pretty cool. Put it in the case with the ticket stub from the game and everything. And we get out on the field that night. And there's a promotions guy from Somerset Patriots walking around with his with his bag, like a drawstring backpack. And he said, here's the ball you're going to be using for the, um, for the first pitch. And I look at it and it's just like a souvenir baseball. Um, if I knew you were going to ask the question, I would have, I would have gotten the baseball to, to, to show it to you. It's in the other room, but it was just like a souvenir Somerset Patriots baseball with the, with the logo on it. I'm like, Oh, I really wanted the, I really wanted like the league baseball, but then they said, turn the ball around. I turned the ball around and it had Sparky Lyle's autograph on it. Sparky Lyle was, He's a man, was I was a Yankee relief, relief, 
pitch, a great relief pitcher um, who I loved as a kid growing up watching the Yankees. And he became the manager of the Somerset Patriots when they first started in the Atlantic League, the same league the Ducks were in. And he's still part of their of their management ownership group. So I'm like, oh, you know what? That's pretty cool souvenir to have is, yeah, it's not the actual ball they're using in the game. But like I got Sparky and I had to use that. I had to use that ball for the first pitch. And the last thing I want to do is throw one in the dirt or throw one over the That's catcher's so head and ruin the autograph that was on there. So I was like that got me a little petrified. So even though the pitch was high, thank God the catcher caught it. So it didn't ruin the autograph that was on there. So, Peter, that's, a, that's an incredible story. We thank you for your time. Everything's been incredible so far. Last question here. What would you say in your life or your career has been your you-know-I'm-right moment? We mean by that is a time or place where you wanted to pursue something. You asked somebody for advice. They said, don't do that awful idea. And you're like, you know what? I'm going to do it anyway. And ultimately, you'll see why it is that I'm right. I'm going <clears> to <throat> I'm going to give you two. I'm going to give you two things if you don't, if, if you can indulge me for just a moment. The first thing I would say is I was in high school and I let it be known to everybody like I was going to college to, to get into broadcasting and uh, there was a social studies teacher that I had in, in high school was you know, a great guy um, we always had great sports discussions and you know come in the next day I always played the night before we'd have a great chat about it or the baseball game whatever so uh, during my senior year, when uh, senior of high school, 12th grade, I started letting everybody know, oh, I'm going, going to Buffalo State, I'm going to major in broadcasting, I'm going to be a sportscaster one day. And so he pulls me aside one day uh, before class and says, um, Peter, um, I just I just want to let you know, I, I think you're making a huge mistake uh, doing this. And I said, you know, why? He goes, my daughter tried to get into broadcasting years ago and she failed miserably at it and i don't want to see the same thing happen to you um I, I think you should look at something else for a living and i'm saying to myself wow like here's it like i have a career goal i have a dream that i want to do and here it is a teacher in my high school that i thought i had a great relationship with is trying to knock me down from my objective so, you know, fast forward in college, you know, coming home from college on visits, you know, I would go in, um, visit the high school and he would say, how you doing? I'm like, oh, I'm working at my college radio station. I'm covering the Sabres. I'm covering the Bills. And, you know, when I'm home on break, the Islanders give me a credential to come done. And then I got the first job at Sports Phone. So I kind of like I always relish the fact that I proved him wrong because it, always, it always bothered me. Like, how could um how could someone who is supposed to help mold you as a person in school then find out what you want to do with your life and just try to knock you down from doing it? And I, I, I carry that with me every single day. When someone tells you that you shouldn't do something, you can't do something, you don't listen to that. But you listen to yourself. You don't listen to anybody else. And I, I have this conversation with my with my kids, my wife and I both will have this conversation. Like, don't let anybody ruin your, your dream. And I, my older son plays high school football and there are, and he wants to play in college and he's got people around him in school that have, um, that have said to him, you're never going to make it. You shouldn't do it. You should try to do something else. And I remind him of my story all the time. Like, don't let other people 
knock you down and deter from your dream. So that's that set the tone for me a long time ago. The other the other moment where I knew I was on the right track for things when I was doing the XFL in 2001. So many people in the sport. Now I'm already established in the sports media at that point. So many people came up to me because they saw it. You know, there were articles about it in the Daily News and things like that that I was going to be doing play by play. And I had so many people come up to me and ridicule me for being involved with the XFL because it was owned by the WWF at the time and it was going to be this crazy form of football and things like that. And my feeling was that, hey, this is going to be an opportunity to do play by play on a professional basis for 10 games on one of the biggest radio stations in the country in WABC. I'm like, and I just, I, I think about it now and it was just like jealousy. And even yeah. when, when people mock you, my wife likes to say, uh, people mock because they can't do it. So people were like mocking me for doing this because you didn't have the opportunity to do it. I did. So I remember right after the last game of the season, cause the hitmen didn't make the playoffs. So uh, the weekend after the regular season ended, I'm covering a Yankees game and I go into, um, uh, I, I go into the press box and my seat is all the way to the left and I have to pass the Yankee radio booth. Um, and standing outside the Yankee radio booth is John Sterling, who I get along with great, always got along with him, really always nice to me and encouraging in my career. And he stops me before I get to my seat. And he says, hello, Peter, I want to talk to you about something. And I said, what's the matter, John? He goes, because I want to talk to you about your experience with the XFL this year. He goes, I, you know, because sometimes the, uh, the hitmen led into the Yankee game or the Yankee game was over and then the football game started. And he told me that he caught a couple of the games because I just wanted to let you know you did a really good job, you know, doing the play by play. And I said, well, you know, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. So, uh, nice to hear that after so many people ridiculed me. And he would say, like, why do people ridicule you? And I uh, this, that, and the other thing, like, you know, I like, shouldn't be involved. And the next words out of his mouth was an expletive. Blank them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> he said, he said, you know, back early in his career, he did the World Football League. He did all these other things. He goes, you got 10 games of pro football experience they're just jealous same thing that my wife and i would tell our kids um and i that always stuck with me too that here so i i knew when you have someone like that that was so encouraging and so nice to me that i knew i was on the right path so yeah. um those, those would be the That's... two the two moments for me in my career where it was kind of like an eye-opening thing yeah it definitely worked out and it, it, the xfl launched launched things for you Worked out for Matt Freskirk and some others. So nothing to be ashamed of. Peter, we thank no. you so much for your time. This has been a lot of fun. And that's going to do it here for this episode of You Know I'm Right for our very special guest, Peter Schwartz, my co-host, Joe Calabrese. I'm Nick Durst, and this has been You Know I'm Right. Mm-hmm.